We have a title of our message up there. To die is what? To die is gain. To die is gain. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 20 to 23. Actually, 21, 22, and 23. I'll give you a moment to get there. Paul is speaking. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is is more necessary on your account. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your living, abiding word, your searching word, your revealing, liberating, illuminating word, Father God, that cuts and dices and reveals and brings down and builds up, Father God, from the inside out. Lord, give us understanding of what the apostle is teaching here about for him to die is gain, Father God. Teach us, Father God, that we know like Paul. Give us the confidence and the convictions that he has that to die was gain, to be at home with you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. As we've been speaking about things in Christian eschatology, things concerning the end times for a Christian, what it means to the world, what it means to us personally, uh, brings us tonight's message on what happens to a Christian when he dies. What happens to any soul when they die? You know, we just, we know we're going to be in heaven and so on and so forth, but we want to clarify these things up as we grow up in Christ. We want to understand exactly what is awaiting us. What does the Bible teach us about heaven? What does it teach us about what happens to us personally when we die? In our hearts, we know we have the hope of glory, Christ in us. We know that nothing can separate us. We know intuitively by the gift of the Holy Spirit that we'll be with God, that we'll be with God. But how important is it to know that? As I studied out this doctrine, which we will call the intermediate state, so Christian thinkers and theologians call it the intermediate state. It's, it's not the full heaven. It's not the new heaven. It's not the new earth. A soul dies, and if you're a believer, of course, you go right into the presence of God. But what does that mean? It's, it's not perfect. We're not in our resurrected bodies yet. We're not on a new heaven. We're not on a new earth. There's still work to be done on this world. So, but what does it mean for the believer that dies? And I ask this question, how important is it? Is it a very important doctrine? Before we get into it, I want you to know the Bible doesn't say all that much about exactly what happens to us when we die. It doesn't say all that much. It gives a lot about the new heaven and the earth, but it doesn't tell us much. But what it does teach us is assuring and, and, uh, and brings us great comfort and assurance of that we will be in the presence of God is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. So when it comes to this doctrine of the intermediate state, I ask how important is it? And I'm going to teach you, I'm going to show us something of how important it is to know what happens to us when we die. I'm going to do it in the negative, then I'll teach it in the positive. But the negative is this. Over the years, there's been many, many, many books and movies about what? 
near-life death experiences and so on and so forth. Just a fast Google on after-death books. They were endless. Absolutely endless. Okay? But I, uh, I wrote down some of them. Here's one. Is there life after death? The extraordinary science of what happens when we die. Is by Anthony Peck, published in 2012. And this is the, an excerpt. Do you occasionally have the strange feeling known as deja vu? It's a nice question. He goes on to ask, do you sometimes feel that you know what is going to happen before it does? Do you ever have a strong feeling that actions you are about to take are right or wrong thing to do? All these perceptions may be everyday clues to your immortality. Uh, that sound familiar? Do you know your Bibles well? Did not Satan say you shall not die? Didn't Satan say that to Adam and Eve when you eat? Who said you shall die? You're immortal. You're not going to. Anthony Peck is saying the same thing. It's the secret to our immortality. This book proposes a simple, amazing theory. A theory that states that personal death is a scientific impossibility. Using the latest findings of the neurology, quantum physics, and consciousness studies, Anthony Peck suggest that we never die. After reading this book, you will understand the reason for your life and how you can make it better the next time around. Okay, that's Anthony Peck's take on the afterlife. I hope you don't real. These are some of these books we're going to be saying are best-selling on the Times list. All right? Here's another one. The Audible Life Stream, Ancient Secrets of Dying While Living. Alistair Conwell. The audible live stream or primordial sound current, whatever that means, okay, <laughs> is the all-pervasive universal consciousness within everyone. Are you with me? I hope you say no. Because if you're following me, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't even know what I'm reading over here, okay? But this is what our friends and family are, are adhering to. Please understand, people you know are reading this. That's why there's a market for it. People want to know. But he goes on to, after this consciousness, he says, Few realize there is credible evidence indicating that Jesus, Buddha, and Krishna, and so on, all perfected the meditative technique of turning their attention inwards. He should read the Bible. Jesus was always where? God would. Everything he did was in the presence of God and for God. Thereby, all these three men merging with the audible life stream to become adept of dying while still living. This is the first book that provides convincing evidence of the audible life stream and the, em and the emphasis, the importance of it in every human being. Since none of us can escape the clutches of the Lord of Death, that's good theology, this unique book provides evidence of the audible life stream from a variety of sources, including testimonials of near-life death experiences, out-of-body experiences from people of the USA, the UK, the Australia, excerpts from major religious texts, 
simply explain quantum physics principles and independent anecdotes from increasingly popular field of sound music therapy. What does that mean? <laughs> but I'm serious. I mean, well, what does that mean? Could you imagine people going through Barnes and Nobles and they're thinking about the mysteries of life? They're, they're trying to deal with the reality of death and they're reading this. But this is how Satan works. This is all satanic. It, it lures people in. It, 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 it preys on the naive. There's another book. You probably remember this one. 1992 bestseller. Embraced by the light. Near-death experience of Betty Eddy. Guides the reader to the spirit world and her return to earth. And a powerful message of God's everlasting love. Okay, on uh, here's another one. My journey to heaven: what I saw and how it changed my life by Marvin Besteman. On April 28, 2006, as he lay in his hospital bed in Ann Arbor, Michigan, visions of celestial beauty were the last thing of, on Marv's mind. He had just had surgery to remove a rare pancreatic tumor. It was after visiting hours and his family had left for the day. Alone and racked with pain, Marv tossed and turned, wanting more than anything else to simply sleep and escape the misery and discomfort for a while. The retired banker, father, grandfather had no idea he was about to get a short reprieve in the form of an experience he never could have imagined. If you don't understand, that's the resume. That's the, that's the drag us in now. It works on our heartstrings. It's the father, the grandfather, the banker. He's in pain. So now this must sort of uh, give authority to his experience. He goes on. In my journey to heaven, Marv Bestman shares the story of his experience of heaven with astounding detail. Readers will hear of his encounters with angels who accompanied him to the gate. His conversation, his argument really with St. Peter and his recognition of friends and family members who touched his life. His story offers peace, comfort, encouragement to those who have lost loved ones and gives security and solace to those who are grieving and dying about and wondering about the afterlife. Marv believed God sent him back to earth to fulfill his mission of comfort and reminds readers that God has work for each of us to do, and then he calls us home to be with him in heaven. Secure in his belief, his book was the fulfillment of his own mission. Marv returned to heaven January 12th, January 2012. And of course, the latest one from a Christian perspective is, is Heaven for Real. And as a little boy's astounding stories of trip to heaven and back. Heaven is for Real is the true story of a four-year-old son of a small-town Nebraska pastor who during an emergency surgery slips from consciousness and enters heaven. He survives and begins talking about being able to look down and see the doctor operating and his dad praying in the waiting room. The family didn't know what to believe, but soon the evidence was clear. Colton said he met his miscarried sister, whom no one told him about, and his great-grandfather, who died 30 years before Colton was born, then shared impossible to know details about each. He describes the horse that only Jesus could ride and how really big God and his chair are and how the Holy Spirit shoots power down from heaven to help us. Told by the Father, but often in Colton's own words, this disarmingly simple message is heaven is a real place, Jesus loves children, and be ready, there's a coming battle. Okay.
the list goes on and on and on. I just took a couple of excerpts. So when we're talking about what happens to us when we die, you might think, well, Brian, why don't you give me, how do I make it to Manhattan tomorrow and uh, keep my sanctification? Teach me how to not get angry. Teach me how to be a husband. Teach me how to be a wife. Uh, you know, I'm not worried about dying when I die. Understand something. These are flocking off the bookshelves. Because people want to know what happens when we die. And guess what? Only we know. That's why it's important that we know. This is not a doctrine that we just take for granted. People are starving to death and they are running to this left and right. I had a client uh, many years into New Age and she visited church and she believes in Jesus. And now I spoke to her clearly about the gospel and, uh, you know, careful you have to be with this kind of New Age stuff. And she said yes and stuff. And she read all these books. She, she's a self-confessed junkie. Self, she told me this. Of near-death experiences and afterlife experiences. She loves to read it. But she wants to believe in Jesus, too. And uh, so I gave her a book on it by John MacArthur. <laughs> I never saw her again. <laughs> if you know the book I'm talking about, MacArthur shoots down all the near-death experiences and puts it in its rightful place. It's satanic. It's satanic. It is satanic. Yes, we can say, but can't God touch a little boy? He can do whatever he wants. But he raised his son from the dead. And we listen to him. We listen to nobody else. As soon as we start listening to the left and listening to the right, we are getting ourselves in trouble. The Christian has the answer to life and death, and we need to know that which we believe in. What happens to a soul when we die, we're going to do the best we can to answer that in a short period of time. But hopefully by now in a sermon you realize that this is serious business. To think that some of these books were Time's best-selling books. Best-selling books. The Universal Consciousness. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I know that's a big guru, that's a new big New Age movement, uh, that, that Universal Consciousness, they love that. But what is death? What's a simple biblical answer? I'm going to quote a man by Louis Burkhoff, Christian theologian. Death, death is not the cessation of existence, but a severance of the natural relations of life. Life and death are not opposed to each other as existence and non-existence, but are opposites only as different modes of existence. Physical death separates the soul and the body as we know it. But at this point, the new existent life starts for the individual soul, quote-unquote. What he's saying is, one of total separation from the physical world and others, and from any hope of God's grace, is what happens when a person dies. When the body dies, when the physical, material body dies, the soul lives. And at that point, that soul is separated from any hope whatsoever from God's grace. Unless you have embraced Christ and God's grace and gift of salvation on this side of the grave, as soon as the body dies, all hope of God's saving grace is absolutely, totally over. 
Hebrews 9 speaks about this. This is called eternal death. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that will come the judgment. David speaks about spiritual death uh, being conceived when he was a child in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But death begins to operate, spiritual death begins to operate, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Listen to what he says. But sin, sizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive from apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, sizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So death is more than just biological. It's spiritual in nature. Most human beings know it from a biological point of view biological perspective, but all those books, they were trying to answer the spiritual death, what happens to the soul when we die. That's an attempt, understand something, that's an attempt to speak louder than Christ. Every author of those books and those who publish them are speaking or attempting to speak louder than Jesus Christ. They're trying to shout down the Son of God. It is not, how can I say, it is not uh, something to be fooled around with. That is serious, serious, mind-altering, mind-bending material. It confuses people. And they think you can have that and Jesus at the same time. You cannot have that and Jesus at the same time. But what is life? Jesus says it simply in John 17. And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What he's saying is this. Everything outside of a saving relationship to God through Christ is known as death. Paul says you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. A man's not alive until he's born again. Up until that point, he's dead. He's dead in his sins. He's dead in trespasses. He's dead in hope. And he's dead in his relation to God. Because there's no ultimate hope here on earth or in eternity. Life the way God defines it is only found in a right relationship with Him. The rest is only passing time until the judgment, no matter how many toys of this world we accumulate. As Jesus famously says, why does it profit a man to gain the whole world? For many people, the thinking of gaining the whole world would be, that's true life. I've entered into life. I've gained the whole world. Look how well am I doing in my life. But he says, what good is it if you forfeit your soul? It's not life. The Christian must know that life begins when we're born again. That is it. And life continues as we fellowship and we enjoy God. Not what we accumulate. Not what we have. Not what we desire. It's nice to have desires, hopes, and dreams. And God to, to be in those, that equation, that's fine. But life is relationship with Jesus. Pure and simple. So then, what does happen to a believer as soon as physical death has occurred? Well, our text says it well tonight for us who are in the Lord. It says, with the Lord. 
That's what happens to us when we die. When a believer dies, we're with the Lord. Perfectly with the Lord. Life really begins now. Life eternal. As God designed it with all the perfect peace, internal joy and satisfaction to be with the giver and author of life himself, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a believer when he dies. To be with the Lord instantaneously in less than a nanosecond, that is a millionth of a second, in less upon the last breath, right at the last heartbeat, we are consciously in the presence of God forever. That's not heaven yet though. That's the intermediate state. Heaven, as the Bible defines it, is when the new heaven and new earth comes and our full resurrection body and we're for all the saints and we're with Jesus Christ, the new heaven and new earth, and God is at the center and Jesus Christ begins the party by drinking the wine anew with us and afresh in heaven. The soul's experience of total liberation from sin. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think of what it means that you will think absolutely perfectly? Not one distraction. Every thought, every conscious moment will be focused on God and His goodness towards us. Total liberation from Satan and all worldly seductions and distractions. This is the perfect peace that the Bible is talking about. This is eternal joy and satisfaction. No doubts, no fears, no anxieties, no selfishness, no pride, no vanity. You won't even think about yourself. Think how liberating that is. You won't even think about yourself for a moment. You'll be enthralled with Jesus. Enthralled, overwhelmed at perfect grace. In his perfect presence. It's mind-boggling. That's why Paul rather desire to be home with the Lord. But even now, we taste it in our Christian life. We taste the presence and the peace of God. We have the hope of glory. We have Christ in us. There's that guarantee, the seal, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, which grown in us to be with Christ. You know, we read the New Testament from a 21st century perspective. We live in New York. We live in Brooklyn. We live in America. Most of us, if not all of us, are privileged. Whether we think so or not, there's no one here hungry. No one came in here naked, as far as I can see. Uh, everybody's doing well. We, we probably think we're not doing well, but we're doing much, much better than the first readers of this epistle. Please understand that. We're doing quite well, comparatively, to the first century believer. For us, we put this kind of stuff off, of thinking about life after death and being in heaven well, that's like the Christian's last rites. Well, don't tell me about it. Wait till I'm dying, then tell me. No, you're going to find out how important it is to know now. You're going to find that out tonight as we look at it through the prism of Paul's life. 
But even here, our final salvation is only partially fulfilled. As awesome as it is, it's only partially fulfilled. And as we said, this is what the Bible calls the, this is what we call the intermediate state. Life for those who die in the Lord is one of waiting with great anticipation of their final salvation and resurrected bodies. There is still a final resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Then the judgment before God's white throne. Then there's also the stand standing before Christ's throne to give an accounting of their gifts and their talents and how they use them on earth. This is all waiting for us. Then Satan, death, and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire and all those who follow them. Then comes the new heaven and the new earth. And then there's that wonderful scene of the bride of Christ adorned for a husband coming down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem. If you're not sure who that is, that's you and me. And all true believers. Then comes the end of human history as we know. The scriptures teach us and give us great comfort in what's going to happen in our lives. Even if we live to be 10,000 years old in health, prosperity, and no fears, this is still a warranted teaching. But to put it into reality that most of us have lived 50% or more of our life already, it's even better to know this. Unlike our book writers and their experience who want a higher personal experience of life, the Christian longs to be with Christ. To be with Him, the giver of life, the Savior. And to enjoy Him for whom they were created. And then also redeemed from death to life. The Christian's focus is always on the triune God, whether in this life or the next. Anything else is a whimsical counterfeit that leads to death. That's all it is. All those books are whimsical counterfeits of the gospel. The unbeliever who does not know Christ, who does not die in the Lord, goes right into a state of conscious misery and devoid of any hope whatsoever, forever. And there they wait in solitary confinement for the final judgment and sentence at God's tribunal with no advocate in their defense. We'll be speaking about this in the weeks to come. How do we apply a doctrine like this to our life? Where do we start? Our culture is very much aware of and afraid of dying, as all these books testify to. What comes after life? And are looking for answers, as all these books teach us, and as many of them are on the Times bestseller list. That man's greatest aspiration is truly to live forever. Man doesn't want to die. Animals don't give it much thought. But we are conscious of mortality, and we don't want that. And Christ came and saved us from it. Only the Christian has the answer. All these so-called near-death experiences of counterfeits of Christ 40 days. These books and these writers, they come back and, and they encourage the world with their experiences. But understand, that was, that's Jesus' job to encourage sinners about the afterlife. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was for 40 days he stayed with his disciples, teaching them and discipling them about the kingdom of God. That's Christ's job. These are all counterfeits. Counterfeits, counterfeits. 
And my, I have to add satanic counterfeits. No matter how much they pull on the heart screen of the banker and the child and, and, and the woman and the grandmother and, and they died and they were in pain and, and they, people are drawn in and then their experience speaks louder than Christ. As Christians, we cannot shy away from this. We got to be bold, loving, and to tell people this is satanic. Straightforward. It's satanic. Only Jesus has the answer to life. That's, that's our answer. Only Jesus Christ and salvation in him has the answer to life, death, and sin. This is the destiny of all believers. Two things I want to apply. Whether we're the great apostle Paul, who can cry out, for me to die is gain. It's far better to be with Christ. Or it's the passionate evangelist or the insightful teacher or the faithful, compassionate pastor. Or most important, whether it's the struggling saint who can't get out of their own way sometimes. No matter where we are in Christ, whether we're one day old in Christ, whether we're 40 years old in Christ, whether we are the great apostle Paul, or we're just a struggling ordinary saint in 21st century Brooklyn, as soon as we die, the promise is for all, not for Paul. It is for every born-again believer, no matter what the state of their sanctification is in, no matter how they're saved, no matter if they're caught in the middle of sin when they die, they will be in the joyous presence of God forever, instantaneously, Unequivocally, right away. This is not for those who think they're high and mighty and they're walking in the spirit. If you are a saint and you're struggling in the flesh and you die, we go instantaneously into the presence of God. Never to struggle with sin again. But the second application is a bit different. First, we must understand that this is not a death wish by the Apostle Paul when he says, for me to die is gain. There's not a death wish. We have to understand, in the context of what Paul is talking about, this is a settled disposition of what life is all about. What Paul is saying, it's more about life than it is about death. He weighed his life in the, first, in the face of eternity. The reason Paul can say with a deep conviction that the die was gain, how many can say the die is gain in this room tonight? Can you really contemplate? Have you or I ever said to die is gain? I'll tell you right now, I don't say that. I know it, but I don't say it. But I know to die is gain. It was because Paul already had a settled mind in his heart that to live was Christ. To live is Christ. That's why die is gain. This is not about dying. This is about living. To live is Christ. And if living with Christ is great, how awesome is death going to be when I'm liberated from this life? This is not about dying. It's about living. That's what the truth does. That if Christ should die for me, Paul says, I will live for him. Then he knows how now how to live. He should live for him who died. 
life of Paul began when he met Christ on Damascus Road. Everything before that, Paul says in his very epistle, is rubbish. I count all things as a lost and rubbish, trash, for knowing Christ my Lord. If Christ was taken out of his life then, his life would have been meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Christ gave strength and reason for living, even in the most difficult times. Are you familiar with the book? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. A man in jail, a man with an uncertain future, a man who was fighting false teachers, a man who was fighting those who preached the true gospel, but they did it for money. He says in verse 19, the second chapter, all have deserted me. But yet he says rejoice. Again I say rejoice. Nothing could hold this man down. Of course to live with Christ and to die was gain. How do you deal with this man? This is an unreasonable maniac. Paul was crucified with Christ in heart. It was no longer him who lived, but Christ who lived through him. Whatever meant more to Christ meant more to Paul. Where Christ's heart was, there was Paul's heart. Where Christ's concerns were, there was Paul's concern. Where sinners were, there was Christ's loving message for the sinner and the apostle Paul. Where Christ loved Jews, Paul loved Jews. If Christ loved Gentiles, Paul loved Gentiles. If Christ loved the Roman, Paul loved the Roman. If Christ loved the barbarian, then Paul loved the barbarian. Paul was biblically and rightly consumed with Jesus Christ and his mission of mercy. He enjoyed greatly the new covenant with the presence of Christ as it was poured out into his heart through the Holy Spirit as in this very epistle, Romans 5, 4 says. How much more death? If life is sweet with Christ, how awesome is death going to be? For the man to live is Christ. I've settled the issue in my heart, he's saying. How much more is gain when I die? This death is more than a, this verse is more than a death wish brought about by tough situations. As I said already, this is a settled disposition of the mind and heart of a man. All about Jesus dying on the cross that he should live. This is a man that really thought through what Christ has done. If every Christian consciously gave the quality, time, praise, and prayer to God for what Christ did personally on the cross, understand something, there'd be no stopping us like there was no stopping the Apostle Paul. None at all. This man was so sold out for Jesus. He was a fanatic. People think me and you are fanatics because we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They think we're a fanatic because we truly believe you need to be born again. They think we're fanatics because we believe the Bible. They think we're fanatics because we believe in absolute truth. If Paul was to walk in here and preach, we'd all shrink. We'd shrink in shame. What I would. I've heard evangelists preach, missionaries preach. I want to hide. I got problems. They're living in rat infested tents. 
and I'm complaining. Where are we in our life? Maybe we don't give much, and this is for all of us, including me, maybe we don't give much thought to death is gain. Maybe we don't. But maybe it's because we don't live for Christ. Where are we? I think if we were really sold out for the Lord as much as we should be, and God wants us to be, and that the Holy Spirit is producing in us, I believe we would know how sweet that cry is. Let's close. We live in a world filled with fears and worries about uncertainties of life in the hereafter. All these books confirm that. Many try to overcome these uncomfortable realities by strengthening a better self and finding out something about the here and after. But the Christian knows that dying to self as we pick up the cross and living for Jesus has a benefit. It has a benefit. It has the benefit of empowering us to face all life's uncertainties and death itself with a confidence that's not of this world. Let's be prepared to give real answers to real people about life after death. Let's not shy away. Let's not shy away. Don't shy away from sin, the judgment, and Satan. Let's point people to Christ. Father, we bless you. And we thank you, O oh God, that the believer can truly cry out with Paul, for to us to die is gain. God, thank you for such a merciful gospel that just doesn't lavish upon us with all insight and knowledge our redemption, our adoption, and our certain eternity with you, but to know that we will be in your conscious presence immediately upon that last breath. That last breath, Father God, is the calling card to you, Lord. Let us all embrace that last breath, Father God, by first and foremost, to live for Christ is gain. God, let that be on our lips. To live for Christ is gain. In Jesus' name, amen.